Greetings and welcome to White Throne Baptist Church Online. I want to thank you for being here today. I am Pastor Eric Newcomer of White Throne Baptist Church, and today we're going to be taking a look in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14, going all the way through verse 41. Now, what we've been looking at here in the book of Acts is the beginning of the church, is the story of the continuation of what happened after Jesus uh, rose and ascended into heaven. And what we have is a profound account of what was going on in the early church, how the Holy Spirit came upon the believers for the first time. And the Holy Spirit really being the main actor in the book of Acts uh, moves the church to preach the word of God, to spread the news that changed the world and is still changing the world to this day. As we saw previously, we saw that uh, what we find ourselves in Acts chapter 2 is this. It's the day of Pentecost, a Jewish feast that brought Jews from all around the world to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate. And so what we see is it's at that time that God sends the Holy Spirit upon the believers to proclaim the gospel message. Uh, what better time than when all these people are gathered around? And so uh, naturally to overcome the language barriers there, the Holy Spirit gives the uh, apostles and the others with them the ability to speak in these foreign languages and to proclaim the mercies of God to everyone there. And so it's a miraculous thing. It draws the attention of many. And what we're going to see in the sermon here is that Peter takes that opportunity to stand up and proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ. And we're in the middle of kind of a mini-series in this, the, the greater series being called The Witnesses of the King. But then there's kind of a three-part mini-series here that we're working on with Peter's sermon. And we're in the middle of it this week. Last week, we looked at the fact that his preaching was Christocentric, that is, had Christ at the very center of it. This week, we're going to look at the fact that his preaching is biblical, that it utilizes as its primary raw material the scriptures. And then we're going to see next week that his, or, or in two weeks from now, that his preaching is commanding, that he doesn't uh, offer requests, he doesn't simply give this gospel as an option for the people, that he indeed suggests it is necessary to respond. So what we're going to look at this week in biblical preaching is we're going to see that Christian preaching indeed must be biblical. Now, before you check out and you say, well, this is about preaching. This isn't really for me. He's just going to go on about, you know, how preachers should act and how preachers, what they should say from the pulpit and this kind of thing. That's not at all what we're looking at. We're looking at a broader picture than that. That's certainly part of it. And that's the example we're seeing in Peter here. But the bigger picture is this, that when we do ministry, that is when we share the gospel, whether it's with our neighbor over a fence, whether it's with a stranger in the marketplace, whether it is from the pulpit of our churches or on the streets uh, preaching to others, we have to have as our raw material the Bible for our preaching. And we see the example here in Peter, and we will see this example continued through all the preaching of the book of Acts. And so what we're going to see is you're going to see the whole counsel of God, Jesus in the Gospels, the Old Testament, the New Testament, all attest to this fact that it is the word of God that God uses to save people. Therefore, it must be our primary source in all that we do for preaching and for teaching uh, in our churches. So we're going to hear the summary of Peter's sermon again. Uh, we're going to read verses 14 through 41. I want to remind you that this is a summary 
as it uh, notes at the end that he used many other words to encourage the people. But we're going to take a look at this nonetheless, and we're going to see what we can learn from it. Look at his emphasis on the Bible. It begins in verse 14 like this, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this account of your servant Peter 
and what he proclaimed on that day. Lord, I pray that you'll use this to give us understanding, teach us your ways, to show us the truth, and to mold us into the image of your Son, whose name is blessed forever and ever. Amen. Well, we have a powerful account there and powerful response to that account. We'll be talking a great deal about that response next time. Uh, but what we want to look at here uh, momentarily is we want to take a look at some of the elements of this sermon that Peter preaches here. First of all, I want you to take a look at the Bible as it's used in Peter's sermon. First, take a look at Acts chapter 2, verses 16 to 21. In this, he quotes Joel 2, 28 to 32. And this is where he explains uh, what is happening here because people were seeing what was happening. These people were uttering these different languages, proclaiming the mercies of God. And some suggested, the scoffers in the crowd, they, they mocked. They said, ah, these people must be full of wine and and. Peter addresses that right away and just kind of brushes it off. He says, you know what? Let's just be reasonable here. It's the third hour of the day, you know. But more important, what's you, what you're seeing here is the fulfillment of prophecy. And you're seeing the fulfillment of the prophecy of our prophet Joel. And he quotes here from Joel. And these are words that would have been familiar to many in his audience at this time. He begins, therefore, his sermon, the very first Christian sermon on the very first day of the Holy Spirit-filled Christian church, he begins with a quote from Scripture. And is it any wonder that that is our pattern to this day, that we would begin a sermon, perhaps some introductory notes, perhaps, you know, to, to reason with people a little bit, get them ready to hear the Word of God, but then we begin utterly as the raw material, begin with the Word of God. And this is what he does. And then next what he does is he summarizes the life of Jesus. Now, at the time that Peter said these things, this was not part of their Holy Scripture, but it was becoming part of the Holy Scripture as the Holy Spirit was inspiring the apostles to say what they had witnessed. So this was not yet the Word of God, but to us now it is, certainly. And it became the Word of God right away because what we see at the end of the chapter is these people that come to faith they then begin to be dedicated to the apostles teaching that is everything that they saw jesus do everything they heard him teach this is what jesus commanded they should make disciples with all that he had taught teaching them to obey these things so although this is not yet the word of god it was later written down by the apostles and indeed becomes the word of god but Peter draws again from the Old Testament. So he speaks about Jesus. He says, this Jesus, he was attested to you by works. You know this. He was here. You crucified him. <laughs> and this was all the plan of God. Well, then he gets here to uh, Acts uh, 2.25 here. David says concerning him. And so he quotes again from the Old Testament. This time he's quoting from David, from Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. It was well known in the day of Peter and the beginning of the church that many of David's psalms had messianic content. David was seen as a prophet because he wrote the word of God in the psalms. And much theological truth came to bear. Much historical perspective comes in through these psalms. But also, coloring all of David's psalms is the fact that he got uh, a word from God concerning a covenant that one would be put on the throne from his line, a descendant, a physical descendant of David, 
would reign forever. And so this special promise of God, this covenant as it's accounted in the Old Testament in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, is something that David realized as he wrote the Psalms and as the Holy Spirit carried him. But as people read his Psalms through the years, they began to realize, you know, this speaks of David, but then it goes beyond David. This goes somewhat outside the lines of a mere man. This is something beyond David. And then they began to identify those verses as pertaining perhaps to this descendant of David that would come, that would be the Messiah, the Christ. And so this was well known in the time. Peter uses this information. He says, look, right here in Psalm 16, David wrote this. And he says, you know, I saw the Lord always before me. And he says, um, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. He says, now let me speak frankly about David. David's dead and buried. And so here we have another reference that, that indeed he is using David as a historical figure here. It's, it's, it's as if Peter's assuming that the whole Old Testament is true. And he says, yeah, this David, yeah, we know he's dead. And he was buried, and his tomb is right here. You can go down the street and see it. And so he's making this argument from the scriptures, from the history given, that this psalm goes beyond a description of a mere man. It goes beyond what would apply to David. And so he uses the scripture in his way to argue it. And then finally, he's going to come back to the Psalms again, and he's going to say this, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and then he quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1, the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament, the most quoted verse in the New Testament, I think. It's close. And so the Psalm 110 says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this is a very interesting thing. Jesus uses this verse to stump his opposition, the Pharisees and the scribes, uh, regarding this descendant of David, which they knew to be the Christ. Because David says, the Lord said to my Lord. Well, how many lords are there? These, this uses in the Old Testament the two different words that they used for God, their God primarily. That's the tetragrammatons, it's called, the four-letter word for God, which was Yahweh or Jehovah, is the first one. And then the second one is Adonai, which they used uh, almost exclusively for, for the Lord uh, Yahweh. But they said Adonai instead because they had too much reverence for the name Yahweh to actually go around saying it all the time. So this psalm is interesting because it says, the Lord said to my Lord, and it's like, well, how many lords are, are there? I thought there was only one. And indeed, you know, Jesus uses this and it says, how can David call this one that comes after him, my Lord? Because they already took this to be speaking of the Christ because of the nature of what it says. Let me put that back up here for you. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So they looked at this and they said, okay, this, this is about more than David because this is about all the enemies being subdued. This is about, you know, someone sitting at the right hand of the Lord. This is the Messiah. And Jesus says, how can, why then does David call him Lord? Because in the Jewish mind, 
the father was always greater than the son, that a man was always greater than his descendants. No one would ever claim to be greater than Abraham that was a son of Abraham. No one would ever claim in the priesthood to be greater than Aaron because Aaron was their father. And so you have a problem here and Jesus brings this up and it stumps him and he goes, how can David call this one Lord? Because we know this one's coming from David. Well, we know how he can call him Lord because he was the son of God himself, Jesus Christ. That's it. And then Peter says, this is about Jesus. This is about the Christ. And this makes him two things, he says, and he concludes here in verse 36. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Look, Peter says, because this speaks of him in Psalm 110. And David calls him Lord. And this is clearly the Christ. This is evidence because he was raised from the dead, that he is both Lord and Christ. Wow. So David uses the scriptures in a radical way, and he uses them dramatically, and he uses them properly. We learn from him how to do this. We learn from the apostles how to interpret the Bible. We learn from Jesus how to interpret and understand and rightly apply the Bible. And when we follow their example, it has this same power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that brought 3,000 to faith that day Peter preached that sermon. This same power is unleashed when the Word of God is used and nothing else. Let's look at what the Scriptures say about why then the Word of God. First of all, God saves through His Word. God saves through his word. This is, this is a very practical understanding of this. Look what it says here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says to Timothy, and this is probably the last one of the last letters Paul wrote. He knows he's going to die. He's writing what he believes to be his last letter to Timothy. And so he's telling him what he needs to know before Paul dies. So Paul's telling Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned. Paul knew Timothy's background, and he says, continue then in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, yes, the scriptures, the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul even appeals to Timothy and says, look, those scriptures, those sacred writings are able to to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. And that's just the Old Testament. <laughs> Paul was writing and the other apostles were writing the New Testament. And maybe they weren't aware of that at the time or how it would all shake out. But he, Paul's saying, look, that word, that's sufficient. That's what brought you where you are because he had a faithful grandmother and he had a faithful mother who taught him these things. And then he had a faithful teacher and mentor in the person of Paul. So Paul knows what he learned and he knows where he learned it from. And he's telling Timothy, hang on to that. That is key. That is important. So this is how God saves. Look what it says in the book of Romans. When Paul says over there, he says, everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, Peter quotes that same thing we saw in the verses we just read out of Acts chapter 2. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's from the prophet Joel. And then Paul goes on, How then will they call on him whom they've not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Paul looked at it this way. The word of God has to be preached in order for someone to believe and be saved. It is the necessary ingredient that this word be proclaimed. This is how people are saved. This is how God does it. And once we are saved by the word of God, you know, through the Holy Spirit, acting through the word of God, through the conviction of God, then God sanctifies us through this word. In other words, he sets us apart more and more for the work of the ministry. He makes us more like his son, Jesus Christ. Look what uh, uh, Jesus says on the night that he prayed for his disciples and indeed also for us. Look what he says here. He says, sanctify them in the truth your word is truth in other words he appeals to the father set these apart make them holy make them different and how's he going to do that he's going to do that through the word because it is the word that is truth look how paul says it here in ephesians chapter 5 when he's explaining how to get along in the church he's explaining then how to get along in marriage and he says marriage is really an illustration god gave us of Christ in the church. And listen to what he says about Christ in his church in verse 26 here, that Jesus sanctifies her, that is the church, as the husband should sanctify the wife, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. In other words, it is the word of God that washes the church, that cleans her, that makes her acceptable to God, sets her apart, makes her distinct and indeed beautiful for him. This is the work of the word of God to sanctify us. This is important. Why the word of God is chosen? Well, Jesus affirmed the word of God. If we look at the uh, gospels and we look about Jesus' attitude concerning the word of God, this is why many people today are saying, well, I'm not so crazy about Paul. I don't like that Old Testament stuff. Just give me Jesus. Well, when we just give you Jesus, we go to the gospels and we find out Jesus wants you to have all that other stuff too. He wants you to have Paul. He wants you to have the Old Testament because look what he says about the word of God. In Matthew chapter five, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this about the word of God. He says, uh, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This was Jesus' attitude. In John, he says this about the word of God. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus was claiming to be the bread of life. He was claiming to be the giver of life, the one in whom is eternal life in the book of John. And he comes along and he appeals. He says, look, you're looking for eternal life in the scriptures. They should be bringing you to me. And he's talking about the Old Testament. He's saying that should bring you to me. And indeed, it should. Look what he says in uh, the book of Luke. In the end of Luke, in Jesus' resurrection appearances, there's much about the word of God. In Luke chapter 24, he comes along two of his disciples walking on the road. They're leaving Jerusalem. Jesus has been crucified. They've heard rumors of him being raised, but nevertheless, they are discouraged leaving the city. Jesus intercepts him, walks along the way with him, and he says this, and, and it says this about it, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning 
himself. Now you say, give me Jesus and leave the rest of it aside. The only way you're going to get Jesus is you're going to get the scriptures beginning to end Genesis to Revelation. It is all about him. And you can only have the fullness of Christ through the fullness of God's word concerning him. And so this is powerfully important. Um, when Jesus is transfigured, the disciples go up on a mountain with him. He takes three of his disciples and they see Jesus transfigured before them. One of the people standing there is Moses and the other is Elijah. And some say that that represents then the whole Old Testament, Moses being the law, the first five books, and Elijah representing the prophets, which are all the books that follow that. Uh, but there's more than that about that. The appearance of Moses there is important because Moses said in Deuteronomy 18.15, he says this, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. You notice that? It says, it is to him, singular, you should listen. And so Moses was talking about a particular prophet. Now, many prophets came along, and indeed, they should be listened to. But this one in particular, it says, it is to him you shall listen. Well, guess what happens on the mountain during Jesus' transfiguration? The voice comes from heaven, which is, of course, the Father, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. <laughs> listen to him. Just like Moses said, there's going to be one coming along, you got to listen to him. He's the one that came along. He's the one to be listened to. Jesus affirmed the Word of God, and the Word of God affirmed Jesus. It is all tightly woven together in a powerful way that beginning to end makes you understand it is impossible for this book to have been written by all these different people in all these different places throughout time with one without having one overriding editor, one master author, and we know that's the Lord God himself. All scripture is indeed God-breathed. Well, so Jesus affirmed the word of God, and so therefore we should pay attention to it. But there's something else that's very important and very profound and should be very obvious. God judges by his word. God judges by his word. This is the lesson of the Old Testament. Everything God dealt with, with the people of Israel, uh, this becomes very plain and very true. Uh, read Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It is solely about the word of God and the importance of of it. But listen to what Jesus said about the Word of God. He says this in John 12, 48 about his own words. He says, uh, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Will judge him on the last day. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the standard by which judgment is. And these words of his are recorded in the gospel. And these words of him, his are interpreted and applied by the letters. So we need to pay attention to the scriptures because it is by the word of God that we will ultimately be judged. He says much the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Listen to what happened to the house on the sand in his parable here. He says, the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. 
in the context there at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you'll be noticing what Jesus is proclaiming. He's proclaiming the standard by which we will be saved. And he is declaring that some will come to him, appealing to a great number of works, even some miraculous works, that they'll come to him and say, Lord, look at all the things we did in your name. And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Then he tells this little parable about building the house on the rock or on the sand. Building it on the rock is building it on the words of Jesus. That is the word of God. So God proves himself by his word also. So God judges by his word, but he also proves and vindicates himself by his word. God proves his word by fulfilling prophecy. One of the ways that we know that the Bible is true is that it has in its pages fulfilled prophecy. Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies, some say up to 300 prophecies, depending on how you look at the uh, fulfillment of those things. But we know that also the Old Testament, in the, in the history of the people of Israel, many, many prophecies are confirmed. And so this was a test. We go back to Deuteronomy 18, and Moses talked about this. The Lord will raise up a prophet for you, uh, like me from among you, from your brothers. It's to him you shall listen. Now he's going to go on to describe how do we deal with prophets when they come along. When somebody comes along and says, I speak for the, for the Lord, how do we know? And he, he says here, he says um, in verse 19, whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This is the Lord speaking. But he says, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. In other words, the people of Israel, if they discovered someone claimed to be speaking for God but was not, he ought to be killed. And God's attitude about that kind of thing should make us very careful about what we say about God and how we uh, proclaim the scriptures and what we claim about God. We need to be accurate or the judgment of God is on us. Anyway, he goes on, how do we know which is which? How do we know which are the good prophets and which are not? How do we know what is the word of God and what is not? It's like this. Um, and if you say in your heart, how may we know uh, the word that the Lord has not spoken? He says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. In other words, don't listen to this guy because he's wrong. If he says something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, he's not from the Lord. It's that simple. So how do we compare the Bible to the Book of Mormon, to the Quran? How do we uh, compare it to the other sacred writings? We see it has fulfilled prophecies. They do not. And so we have the word of God, a more certain thing that has come along that has shown us the truth. Well, so God has uh, proven his word by fulfilling prophecy. And ultimately, the reason why we use the word of God is very simply this. God has chosen his word to accomplish his will. It's really that simple. God has chosen his word to accomplish 
his will. Uh, let's look at the evidence of that. Look in Isaiah chapter 55, a book that has a lot to say about Jesus Christ. Well, listen to what it says about the word of God. And I'm going to go back a little bit. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, so he's telling us a, a an example here, a metaphor. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So it just makes sense that this one who spoke everything into existence, who did the initial creative act by his word, is going to judge by his word, is going to save by his word, is going to sanctify by his word. It is his word is the primary raw material we have to be using in the church and we have to submit to it. See, it's not enough to know the word. It's not enough to read the word or to proclaim the word. We must obey the word. Jesus said, this is how I will be able to spot my disciples. They're the ones who do what I command. They don't just hear the word, they do the word. And so we have to receive this word. We have to submit to this word. We have to obey the word. It is the word that God has chosen to accomplish his will. Now, some will uh, complain and some will say, yeah, but I have the spirit of God. He will enlighten me directly about the things of God and my hearer too. I just trust that if I just tell people about God and what he's like, um, that those people I tell that the Holy Spirit will work with them and save them. But I say, how do you know whether it's the spirit of God that is moving you or is it a demon or is it last night's pizza? The only way you know the difference, the only way we're able to test the spirits, as John tells us to do in 1 John 4, is to have an objective outsider, a standard that can't be meddled with by mankind. That's the word of God. That's our test. That's how we know what is true and what is false. It is the word of God. We can't go on our feelings because our feelings uh, come out of a heart that is corrupted. I would refer you to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and following. That will be very helpful. You can see them there in your notes. That these the things of God are simply not in the mind of man that we could conceive them. The plan of God is not something we could come up with. It is far too fantastic. It is far too great. It is uh, something that would be impossible for man to come up with because man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness, according to Paul in Romans 1. The Spirit of God indwelling us, even so, we're prone to bias. We're prone to pride. We still sin, and we still have the ability to act selfishly, even with the Spirit of God, even believing the gospel. So the content of the Bible is what we turn to. The Holy Scriptures is what corrects us and what brings us to salvation and what sanctifies us. By our nature, we seek out what we want to hear. But in the wisdom of God, he gives us his word and he gives us his word by the spirit. And by that same spirit, he confirms the word in us and gives us understanding of the word. Perhaps the best way to understand how, why and how God uses his word is to consider the alternatives. 
What are the alternatives to the Word of God? The alternatives to the Word of God are the things of man. This would be philosophy and psychology. It would be science, or as they say these days, the science. And let me give you a hint. If anybody says the science, they really don't understand science. It's not a thing. It's a process. And so the uh, these things are of men. Religion is of man. Now, all these things come to bear. A true Christian should be aware of and be able to interact with and be able to indeed use philosophy to further their understanding of things. Uh, psychology can be very useful in its observations, but generally its assumptions and conclusions are wrong. And science indeed is a helpful way to find out things about the created order. But these things are things of man. They do not originate with God, although the principles behind them originate with God. The created order originates with God. But then these things are the interpretations of man without the guidance of Holy Scriptures. All these things are useful, but all of them should be subjected to the standard of God's Word. Indeed, they stand under God's Word. Let me take you to 2 Timothy to explain some things to you. See, the things of man ultimately fail. Philosophy, psychology, science, religion. These things ultimately fail to bring about what God wants to bring about in people, and that's the new birth. That's to save people. That's to bring uh, to, for the, the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven and all these things. We're told that in the last days, people will come that will not tolerate the gospel. And we see this in 2 Timothy, that what they have built themselves upon, this shifting sand, sounds like this. Listen to what it says. Well, Paul talks to Timothy about this. Remember the context, possibly Paul's very last letter, definitely the last written to Timothy. And let's take a look at what he says here. He says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is a description Paul is saying in the last days, a time is coming. And when we see words like that, when we see verbiage like that, we think in terms of the last days. Well, let me tell you, when you analyze what the Bible means by the last days, they started with the coming of Christ the first time. They'll consummate with his return. And so we are in those last days. We are in these final days, and we have been since Christ ascended into heaven. And in these last days, it is the gospel that is operative. It is the gospel going out into the world and it being resisted by the world and, and its prince, the devil. And this is what we have, and this is what Paul describes. These people have itching ears. They don't want to hear what's true. They want to hear what suits them. Well, what does he tell Timothy to do about this? Well, the verses preceding this, verses 1 and 2, 2 Timothy 4, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. So this is really important. He says, I charge you in this. Let me take you to the scriptures so you can see. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is a judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Yes, teaching. And so he says, preach 
the word. Preach what? The word. No, not your opinions, not not Oprah's opinions, not Dr. Phil, not not any kind of thing from the, the religions or the philosophies of men. No, preach the word, the word of God. See, the competition for Timothy was not Jesus' deniers. Is Our primary competition in the church is not the atheists. It's not those who, who aren't interested or don't understand. It is those who distort the message of the gospel to suit their own desires. Like people want to remain, people who want to remain in their sins, so they soothe themselves with thoughts of, the love of God, thoughts of salvation, happy thoughts about Jesus, but they leave out the part about conviction and repentance. Mankind suffers from a self-deluding depravity that will stop at nothing to avoid the truth. This is terribly important and terribly true, that our only chance to be saved is by the power of God. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So let me ask you a couple questions here. How can we be sure that our own self-delusion is circumvented? In other words, how can we be sure to get around that? Because we have this tendency to deceive ourselves. We have this, descent, this tendency in ourselves, even as saved individuals with the Spirit of God, to try to get our own way. How do we get around that? And here's something else that you might want to think about is the preacher has the same problem as the hearer. See, when I talk about mankind's uh, desire to reject the things of God, to hear what he wants to hear, to ignore the truth, and to, to chase around after his own lies and his own religion, his own philosophies, I'm not just talking about you, I'm talking about me. And I have to talk about me first before I talk about you. When I look at the Word of God, I have to let it work on me first, convict me first, then I can turn around and take it out on you. But it's got to deal with me first. How can we be sure that the bias or weakness of the preacher does not compromise the truth? See, the only way we can be sure that both the preacher and the hearer have their own self-delusions and their own will and their own sinfulness bypassed is by the word of God. It is the only objective truth that we have, and so it has to be our primary raw material. Every foolish philosophy of man, every desperate attempt at man-made self-serving and false religion has already been considered by God because it's already known by God, and it is addressed somewhere in His Word. To the eternal creator and sustainer of the universe, he who stands outside of time Indeed, there's nothing new under the sun. He's seen it before, he expects to see it again, and he wrote his word to guard against it. And for every heresy, for every cult, for every foolishness that man comes up with, there is somewhere in the word of God that addresses that issue, and sometimes very specifically. He has given his word. It is timeless. It is always relevant. It is always reliable. And it's ready to be honest when we are not ready to be honest. I want you to think about, if you will, a visit to the doctor's office. And I want you to consider what a bad doctor would be like. A bad doctor is one who would diagnose you. 
and not tell you the truth about your condition. Maybe he's afraid of what you'll think about him. Maybe he's afraid you'll be discouraged. And so instead of telling you, oh, you've got this cancer and we're going to have to attack it hard and we're going to have to start with surgery and we're going to have to do some chemo and we're going to have to do some radiation and then maybe we can get you through this thing. It's going to be a long, hard journey, but I'm your doctor. I'm here to do it. The medicine's going to hurt. It's going to make your hair fall out. It's going to make you miserable at times. You're going to hate it. It's going to be appointment after appointment. It's going to interrupt your lives. It's going to affect your family and everything else, but we can cure you. We can get you through this. That's what the good doctor would say. The bad doctor would come along and say, oh no, your symptoms, it's not really a bad thing. Here, we can give you a little something for the pain and don't you worry a bit about this. It's not going to bother you. You just, you go on home. Here's a little something for the pain and the discomfort. And here's a couple things for the nausea and the trouble you're having and just go on home and rest. And, and I'm sure you'll be fine. That would be a bad doctor. We need a good doctor and a good doctor is the word of God. It is the unbiased one. It is the one that comes forward and says, look, here's your real problem. And think about ourselves and with regard to our real problem, our real problem is sin. This is why the, the final invitation that Peter gives in his sermon is repent and be baptized because what he said cut people to the heart. They said, what do we do? He says, repent, be baptized, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you'll receive that which comes and heals. You get the real diagnosis is this, sin, and the real solution is this, the gospel, and the healing of the Holy Spirit of God who will bring us from death to life, literally makes us alive, literally makes us new again. New creations is what we're called. The Word of God's the only one that will honestly, honestly do that for you. So what do we do with what we've learned today? Well, here's what we do. First of all, learn to rightly handle the Word of Truth. One of Paul's encouragements to Timothy was this, um, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has not needs not to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Learn the word of truth. Learn to rightly handle the word of truth. Learn to use it for yourself in your devotion and your understanding of God and your growth and sanctification. Learn to use it for others as you share the gospel, as you encourage and help others. And the first thing we have to do even before that really is to repent and believe the gospel. This was Peter's invitation at the end, included repentance. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And Jesus, this is what he came and proclaimed from the very first. The same thing that even John the Baptist was proclaiming to introduce Jesus is repent and believe the gospel. And finally, if you find yourselves in one of those uh, places that compromises the word of God, if you find yourself, maybe you haven't joined up with a church yet, join a Bible-believing church. Let us help you with that. Contact us. We can help you find one in your area. Uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for your great ministry to us by your word and by your spirit. I pray that you're known through this message. I pray that the word of God goes out and accomplishes all that you have for it to do. 
We thank you for that word. We thank you that indeed we can trust it, that you've given us something to hold on to. Now, Lord, in each hearer today, I ask you to use that word to convict them, to bring them to yourself, to wash them and make them new with your spirit and make them beautiful to you. Lord, I pray that you'll accomplish a great many things with this in this day. We praise you. Amen. Well, like I said, if you need a, to find a Bible-believing church near you, we can help. Contact us at whitethronebaptist at gmail.com. I will answer those personally, and we can help you find the truth. If you have any other questions or any comments or any suggestions, please send them to us there, and we will respond to you personally. God bless you, and enjoy the day that the Lord has made.